Greetings, podcast listeners. Welcome to the Colorado Review podcast in partnership with the Center for Literary Publishing at Colorado State University. This is Lilia Schreifer. Today, we'll talk about Michelle Ross and Kim McGowan's story, 23 Safety Manuals, from the spring 2021 issue of the Colorado Review. Michelle Ross is the author of the short story collections, There's So Much They Haven't Told You, winner of the 2016 Moon City Press Short Fiction Award and finalist for the 2017 Forward Indies Book of the Year Award for short stories, and Shapeshifting, which was selected by Judge Danielle Evans as the winner of the Stillhouse Press Short Story Award and is forthcoming in 2021. Her fiction has appeared in Alaska Quarterly Review, Colorado Review, Epiphany, Electric Literature's Recommended Reading, Tri-Quarterly, Witness, and other venues. Her fiction has been selected for Best Small Fictions, Best Microfiction, and the Wigleaf Top 50, among other anthologies. Her work has won prizes from Emerus Journal, Gulf Coast, Sixfold, Zizzlelit, and other journals. She is fiction editor of Atticus Review and was a consulting editor for the 2018 Best Small Fictions Anthology. A native of Texas, she received her BA from Emory University and her MFA and MA from Indiana University. She currently lives in Tucson, Arizona with her husband and son. Kim McCowan's debut collection, Undoing, won the 2017 Moon City Short Fiction Award. It was published in March 2018 by Moon City Press. Her novel, The Light Source, was published in 2019 by 713 Books. McGowan lives in San Francisco with her partner and their two daughters and teaches in the Department of Literatures and Languages at Mills College. Her fiction is published or forthcoming in Booth, Cleaver, The Gettysburg Review, Hobart, Smokelong Quarterly, Wigleaf, and many other journals. She is the editor-in-chief and fiction editor for Pithead Chapel. In today's episode, we talk through writing deeply about the realities of gender in the world while turning against prescribed narratives, and how different readers may see previously unturned sides of a character in the light of their own experience. Michelle and Kim also read a selection from their story, 23 Safety Manuals. After work, I stopped by the grocery store, as I often did, to get myself a sandwich from the deli for my dinner and restock on breakfast items, such as bananas and bagels, I could keep in my bedroom where no one could mistake them as communal property. One thing that had quickly become apparent was that my family not only no longer ate dinner together, nobody even cooked dinner or did much grocery shopping. My father worked all the time, so he was rarely home in the evenings. Rod was out a lot too. When Rod was home, he ate microwave dinners. My parents had a deep freezer in the garage loaded with frozen burgers, corn dogs, mini pizzas, chimichangas, and other junk food. I had no idea what my mother ate or when she ate. I wondered if she went whole days without putting food into her mouth. In the grocery store, a woman watched me from the other end of the produce section. When I looked up, she looked away. I looked back at the raspberries, then felt her looking at me again. This happened a few times before I turned toward her so fast that I caught her. I felt like I'd reeled in a tricky fish who'd been nipping at my line. The woman pursed her lips. I realized then that I knew her from somewhere. She was approximately my parents' age, but unlike my mother, this woman put effort into how she looked. Misplaced effort, in my opinion. 
Her nails were too long, talon-like, and painted in unflattering coral, but effort nonetheless. When she wrote her cart over to me, she said, you're Rod's sister, right? I'm sorry, I can't remember your name. You were in my middle daughter's class, Stacy King. I remembered Stacy. She'd been in the car with another girl, Tamara Scott, when they crashed into a median. Tamara had died. I'd heard that Stacy went into rehab right after graduation. The woman squinted at me. Wait, do you not know anything about this? About what, I said. My younger daughter, Sharon, was dating your brother, but she broke up with him a couple of months ago. He'd become aggressive with her, which frankly doesn't surprise me, she said, bitterness creeping into her voice. Here's the thing, she continued. Someone murdered our live oak tree in the middle of the night recently, and I don't think it's a coincidence. Murdered, I said. Hacked away at, with, hacked away at it with an axe, poisoned it. I tried calling your parents, but my calls go to voicemail. I don't want to call the police, but I feel like I have no choice. The grocery store had that bright hot lighting that all supermarkets do. So when I looked at Stacy King's mother, she seemed spotlit. Not just her strange boiled shrimp nails, but also the way her lipstick had rubbed off in the corners. There was something a little wild about her eyes. They were so wide open that her irises were entirely surrounded by the whites of her eyes, which made them seem like bull's eyes. It reminded me of something similarly off kilter about Stacy King, who I could suddenly picture walking down our high school corridor as if it were the swaying deck of a boat. It wasn't that Mrs. King was saying anything implausible. I knew calls in my house went straight to voicemail. I told myself when the phone rang that it wasn't my affair. No one in Galveston was interested in contacting me. And that summer, I would have believed nearly anything about my brother. So I can't really account for the clannishness that kicked in. Did someone hack your tree or poison it? I said. Mrs. King's eyes opened even wider. Her irises were inner tubes flung into round pools of milk. What? You're saying my brother murdered your tree, right? So did he poison it or hack it with an ax or both? Was the ax's blade poisoned? I thought of Hamlet again, remembered the poison tip of Laertes' sword. Would Rod do something so bizarre? Though, or even because the answer felt obvious, I burst out laughing. Stacy King's mother shook her head. You're all crazy, she said, and huffed away, her shoes slapping the linoleum floor. Thank you so much, Michelle and Kim, for joining us. I am very excited to talk with you both about your co-written story, 23 Safety Manuals. My first question, obviously, um, for many of our listeners, it might be the first time that they're seeing an interview with two writers um, on one story. And I guess just to start off with, could you talk about what it is to approach a story with two imaginations or two sets of intuition? What is that kind of dance like as you're working? Do you want to take this first? I don't know. I guess the easiest way for me to talk about that is just to talk about the process of how we do it. Um, and that is that we don't ever really plan anything out. We don't talk about 
you know, what kind of story we're going to write. I mean, at the very most, we might say we're going to write a flash fiction or a longer story. And, and in this case, I had said to Kim, let's try to write a longer story this time around, because it had been a while, I think, since we had done that. Um, and so I just started off with like a page, page and a half of, you know, and I had no idea where it was going and passed it off to Kim and then she writes whatever she wants and then we just go back and forth and we just I mean we rarely say anything about it really we just add our little piece yeah <laughs> we only start talking about structure stuff when they're done usually um but we've been collaborating on stories since 2017 since July 2017 we call them EQs, exquisite corpses. One of us will start a story and send a paragraph to the other person. In this case, it was longer. As Michelle said, it was more like a page. Why write a story with another writer? And why this one? I, I guess I'm asking, um, how do you make the distinction between which stories are ones you write on your own and which ones you work on with the other person? With me, if I have a clear picture of what I want the story to cover, it's a story I write on my own. If I have no idea where it's going and I just have a paragraph, that's any cue. That's a story I'll send to Michelle. But I don't think I've ever sent you a story that I had a game plan for. Yeah, I mean, my friend Dana Deal and Melissa Goodrich, they have collaborated together. They have a really great book together. Um, and they had been talking about it for, I don't know, at least a year or two before Kim and I tried it, but it had intrigued me, you know, Dana would talk about working on a story and then kind of just growing tired of working on it, not knowing where to go with it. And then she would pass it off to Melissa. I mean, I think the way we do it is a little bit different. because It's a little bit more, you know, usually when I start an EQ story, I know that's what it's going to be. I'm like, okay, I'm, I'm going to send something to Kim today, you know? Um, but occasionally, I guess I have started working on something. I mean, not knowing in advance that it was going to be for that. Maybe I just wrote a few paragraphs and then I was like, yeah, I like this, but I, I don't really know what to do with it. So just, you know, take the burden off myself and <laughs> give it to Kim. <laughs> Do you guys feel that the other solves artistic problems you find yourself maybe swirling around in? I think, I mean, I think it has a lot to do with just the difficulty of writing, right? I mean, that you have this blank space and there's so many decisions that you have to make um, to keep going. And, 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 and that process is really hard. I mean, I've, I've always found first drafts really hard. I much prefer revising. And there's something so liberating about being able to not think about what comes next, you know, and just, and, and then when I get it back, because Kim has added something, suddenly I do have new ideas that I didn't have before, you know? So it's, I don't know that it's really necessarily that there's a certain kind of problem that we solve for each other, but but just the general problem of writing and having to make every decision yourself. 
Yeah, it's true. Writing is lonely. Um, and one thing about our collaborations is they're a lot of fun and they're fast too, is one thing that we both talk about that it'll take me, you know, months sometimes to write a long story, a story as long as this one. And in this case, we wrote this story in about three weeks. So it's much quicker than my solo process. I feel like I can lean on Michelle's strengths, you know, things that Michelle is really good at, like she's funny. And our collaboration stories, I think, tend to be pretty funny. I thought I thought the interaction with Stacy King and the murdered tree was absolutely hysterical, actually. <laughs> I like um, that scene. I'm curious whose idea that was originally. Do you remember? Do you remember things like that? Yes. I mean, I do in that case. I don't always, though, Lilia. There are places where I really can't remember who wrote a sentence, um, which is a strange, uncanny experience. But Michelle started that scene where she runs into Stacey King's mother. And I love the description Michelle wrote about how she keeps catching the mother looking at her and then looking away. And it's like a tricky fish on the line. And then you also wrote the part where she accuses the brother of murdering the tree. And I think I threw in all the Hamlet stuff. Yeah, that sounds right to me. <laughs> yeah, there, there are certain things that I think people who know either of our writing well could probably identify as a Kim thing or a Michelle thing. If there's horror films, it's going to be Michelle. If there's um, Shakespeare or weird... <laughs> Reflections and word roots. It's probably going to be me. On that note, what would you say to someone who says how you have to find a coherent singular voice if you're collaborating? <laughs> this is the most fascinating thing about our collaboration process because I don't think Michelle and I sound that much alike if you read our stories separately. But I do feel when we write stories together that this third voice emerges. And I was being serious, Lily, about there are times where I really cannot remember which one of us wrote a particular sentence, which is a weird experience for a writer to not be able to track that. So um, this is a first-person story. And I think with first-person stories, you're always channeling a different voice. But I think it's true even of our third person stories that it's, um, I mean, do you agree, Michelle, that it's kind of a blended voice? Yeah, I mean, I guess, because I agree with you, I think, I think we do write differently in many ways. And yet, I do think that they kind of feel uniform in a certain kind of way. And I wonder if it's sort of like a like a braided, you know, river kind of rhythm that's happening that, you know, while there are two different voices coming together, melding into one, as the story goes, there's a sort of uniformity in that pattern maybe, you know? Um, but, you know, it, it's hard to say exactly what it is that makes them, those little pieces different. I mean, I, I do think that Ken tends to do a lot of these like, you know, um, <laughs> the, the, the paragraphs where, you know, yes, the language stuff, 
lots of metaphors and images and and I tend to write a little bit more of the kind of I guess make something like this happens and that happens <laughs> you know there's a little there, so there's that kind of play back and forth like so I'll make something happen and then Kim does something with it to make it more beautiful and then <laughs> you know? but um but yeah in terms of voice I don't, I don't know I don't know why it works um except that yeah somehow I think there's still a consistency overall with the different styles yeah and the thing I think Michelle and I have both compared it to at different times is improvisation it feels like doing an improv routine where you're working with someone and they all of a sudden their hands turn into sandwiches and you just go with it. Um, and that's one thing I really love about our collaborations is I never know what turn they're going to take. Mm -hmm. It's true that Michelle tends to be more responsible for plot. <laughs> never liked plot very much. But also, but it's funny, I feel like plot is so hard for me in my own stories. And yet I actually find it slightly easier when we collaborate. And maybe because you're, you know, Kim's constantly giving me new material. I, I don't know. I don't know what it is. Well, it was hilarious to hear you say before, because I don't think I'd ever heard you say this, that you hate first drafts and you like revising. Oh, Kim, I've said that a million times. Oh. <laughs> I've just never processed it because I'm completely the opposite. I like first drafts. I hate revising. <laughs> that reminds me a lot. Did you both meet in a kind of workshop? Because uh, I read in with Moon City Press, I think you said you were your first readers. Yeah, that's a funny story. So do you know the six-fold contest? How six-fold works, it's an online journal. And you pay $5 to enter a six-fold contest, and the winner wins $1,000. And it's judged entirely by the writers. So the participants are also the judges. And you get assigned three different sets of six stories each, so three rounds. And you have to rank them one through six. And I did the six-fold contest in 2014, and Michelle's story, Cinema Verite, was one of the stories I was assigned and I loved it. I mean, it was by far the best of the 18 stories I read and Michelle won. And we started corresponding after that. Well, and, and the other part of the story is that um, <laughs> it's, there's just, you get kind of a wild bunch of people commenting on your stories. A lot of them are mean you know, and they, or they just really patronizing, like, you need to use Shakespeare dot, or what, I, what is it, like the Hemingway.com and learn how to write better sentences, or, you know, <laughs> you need to work on your punctuation, and <laughs> I hate your character, your character needs to die, <laughs> that is just ridiculousness, again, and again, and again, and again, and that was my first time doing sixfold but then I got Kim's comment. It was like a completely different story. It was like very detailed, smart comments. It was like, oh my God, who is this person? And she, you know, included her email. So I actually responded to her. And then, yeah, after that, we soon 
started sending each other everything. We talked a lot about your process, but getting into this particular story, Michelle, can you talk a bit about the kind of space that Catherine finds herself in for the majority of the story? So she's working in for the summer, the, I don't know, kind of a, just a summer job in a um, health and safety office at a hospital in Galveston, Texas. And, um, and this is, you know, loosely, very loosely based on a summer job that I had one year in college where I was working in a, in an office like this, um, where there was like people going in and out with like Geiger counters, radiation safety, there was all kind and, and I had to do some copy editing of various manuals that I had no idea whether anybody actually cared about. Um, it was, it, yeah, <laughs> so, but yeah, it was, um, but in her, so in this um, story, it's like all of these men who are doing these various safety jobs that are sort of mysterious. And then there's Catherine and then there's Tammy, the receptionist. And it's so interesting because it's it's really the men in Catherine's life that create this feeling of like a lack of safety or a constant sort of threat. Um, her brother in particular. I mean, it's not just at her office, but when she goes home, um, she has this kind of violent, unpredictable brother who she is conscious of where he is in the house whenever she's home. And then, you know, not to get too much into detail of the plot of the story, but then there's an, the other, this other guy at the hospital who she happens to have gone to um, high school with that she runs into. His name is Shane or Sean. Sean, <laughs> yes. I told you I forget names. Um, we need spark notes for the three of us. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, she has a kind of awful encounter with him. You know, she goes out into the beach with him and a couple of other guys she hardly knows. And, you know, and, and that becomes an uncomfortable situation that she runs from and which is then how she ends up meeting Leonard later in the story yeah. because she's telling him about it the next day. One thing I was interested in is the narrator often um, travels between the the current time. So there's this line about how the masks that are kind of coming down metaphorically between her and Leonard and his talk on that reminds her of, you know, the mask wearing um, during the pandemic. So there's that marker of time there. And there's a sense that the narrator um, has a sort of, a sense of awareness or a feminist lens like as to how in a way that um she kind of identifies where she was in her younger days just so unaware of those kinds of forces affecting her life so I, I guess I was wondering if you were interested in talking about writing someone's individual consciousness against a backdrop of a collective consciousness that is just always changing and we're in this moment now too that it's changing very rapidly I think gender roles is something that Michelle and I both write about fairly often when you say Michelle that feels like one of um, you know that movie Inside Out where 
personality is based on these various core islands. That feels like a core island to me for both of us. Um, and Michelle established, so Michelle wrote those first three paragraphs, and I remember you establishing in those first three paragraphs that it was retrospective. Mm -hmm. and Lilia was just talking about that um, Catherine is looking at herself from a distance and understanding that as a 20-year-old, she didn't realize she was attractive, for instance. But now, you know, as a, I mean, you didn't establish the time distance, but um, now understands all these things. Now she can understand why the older woman in the office, Tammy, is so hostile to her. I don't know, I guess I would say like, I mean, this has kind of come up, you know, a few times in conversation with Kim, like just how much the world has changed, how, <laughs> how much more aware young women are now of, you know, how sexist the world is and, and so empowered to, t to talk about it and, and to um, reject things that I think growing up when we did, um, you know, you largely accepted without thinking as hard about or, or at least, I mean, not, you know, not that you weren't aware of sexism, of course, but but it was it was it was a very it was a very different atmosphere, <laughs> and so I mean I think that's how I see Catherine as kind of being of a similar generation that we are. You know that she's able to now look back and see just how so many different things that she couldn't quite have articulated then, and I think that's what's um, interesting about writing in that retrospective voice, which I haven't really done very often. I don't think. Usually I tend to write stories that are kind of happening now, you know, um, but it was, it was kind of an interesting experience to be able to have her be a little bit naive about certain things, but yet also not <laughs> at the same time with those two different vantage points. In the story, the, this idea of like, I couldn't articulate it then, or I didn't know why then, but, um, so there's this kind of knowing and knowing versus feeling uh, thing happening there. And I think mm -hmm. it, she's on that, she's on that cusp of moving from, as Michelle said, at that naivety to a, an understanding of, okay, what's really going on here, which I guess is what makes the twenties awful. <laughs> <laughs> that is really well put. I mean, it's, it's kind of why her relationship with Leonard breaks down as she's upset about something and she can't even explain to him what she's upset about. So she just lets the, the relationship fall apart, kind of unprocessed. I do see this story as very much of a processing story. And maybe that's partly because we're writing it and you know, the horrible summer of 2020, <laughs> time and ground a halt. <laughs> and it seemed like we were all very much living in our own heads. It is a pandemic story, even if that only comes up once. I do find myself thinking how in the past year, I'm, I also just turned 25. So kind of entering that, 
I guess some, I, I feel something happens between the early twenties and the mid twenties. There's just, a, it just feels like, a, at least for me, just like a huge, like, whoa, this is really what stuff's about, uh, you know, or I just tell myself that, but I think that in the past year, just because we've, we've had so much opportunity to really reflect like that it is a pandemic story because it's a, it's a coming into a knowing, you know, and we see that every day in terms of racial justice and the Me Too movement maybe is less dominating the news cycle, but it's still happening. Um, and I, I don't, I don't know if it's a coincidence. No, that's true. I mean, it, it's this last year has given us all space to ruminate, right? Um, given us, I mean, forced <laughs> us into space to ruminate and to think about things that maybe we've been repressing or burying for a long time. You know, I, I think that Catherine really comes to understand after her father leaves her mother that she sees the disposability, I think, of of her mom, especially that image of her lying on the couch with that little blanket. And I'm just curious if this theme comes into your other work as well. Again, this is my uh, inside out core islands thing, but I do feel like a lot of my writing and maybe a lot of my psychological life is shaped a little bit by having, um, by exactly what you're describing, by having um, a mother who was suffering to some degree about being divorced and responding to that and trying to figure out to what degree I sympathized with it and to what degree I wanted to run away from it. I mean, I think that whatever is going on with their marriage is something that Michelle and I were braiding together. That was not at all, all me, but the image that Lilia was talking about of her exposed on the couch, I have a feeling was me because <laughs> well, I mean, it might have been you, and yet at the same time, it feel it feels very recognizable to me too. Yeah. You know, from my childhood and and how I experienced my parents. You know, yeah. um, it's something we have in common, right? As we are both children of a divorce, right? I think in this story, we never really see those parents talk, right? We have the mother alone and quiet on the sofa and a couple of glimpses of the father, you know, in the restaurant with the woman he's having an affair with, and then also the cinnamon rolls. But there's there's like, there's no communication that we can see between the two of them. And, and that to me felt very familiar, you know, and, and, and you know, I, didn't, I don't wanna be black and white about it. Not, my parents talked sometimes, sure, but that is a feeling of my childhood is like avoidance, you know, two people kind of living in these separate worlds and, and not really communicating and, and, you know, and a, a mother dealing with depression and. Yeah. And walking carefully through that. Yeah. And Michelle brought up a scene. So that was a Michelle scene, but the cinnamon rolls. Well, I guess we both worked on that scene, but that is definitely a scene that she started. It's actually a happy moment, but what is so strange <laughs> about that scene is Catherine doesn't remember what the father is referring to, which is remember, we always used to do this. We would make cinnamon rolls together and she is 
you know, or she just draws an entire blank about that. And you know what, this is a subject that I could go on and on and on about. I feel like my memories are so weird, maybe, and I don't know how other people experience their childhood memories. And they've heard some people talk in very great detail about their childhoods. But, but for me, I have these little tiny glimpses here and there, but mostly I feel like there's this huge black spots, you know, I just don't remember the, especially happier things. I, I feel like I'm probably not remembering correctly. There's probably more happy stuff than, than I fairly recall, but <laughs> mostly I remember the sad and bad stuff. Well, I think that's what the story's pointing towards too, is that because of where adults and children are at developmentally, it makes sense because she's blocking out what her brain took as, I mean, call it trauma or emotional abandonment or emotional neglect or emotional what have you. And it makes sense that the, the adult would block out the negative to tell themselves that they are a good parent and I did make you cinnamon rolls. And yeah, that <laughs> resonates with Right. And I, and I think, you know, um, I mean, I would think you would agree with this, Kim, like as parents now, it's like, I, well, I mean, I think, I think I'm a very different kind of parent or a different kind of mother than, than my mother was, but, um, but also it is, it is hard to imagine, I think what, <laughs> what little injuries I might be inflicting that I'm not aware of because mostly I think oh I make so much effort you know we do this together we do that together but I'm sure inadvertently there are little little small injuries that you know were nothing to me that I didn't even think of I mean it's right it's probably unavoidable to some extent no matter (laughs) fine to think about but yes you know my my two daughters are now 15 and 13 which is a tricky age, I think. And this is another thing I write about a lot and Michelle writes about too, which is girls coming of age. Catherine's a little bit older, but girls coming of age in a you know, difficult world that watches them and doesn't make them feel safe. I'm a woman with autism and I really saw so much of that experience of consciousness in this narrator and just in how in how Catherine has to plan what to say like witty or intelligent things to say or um the asides and the the love of language as a friend feels very familiar to me too um not to say that you specifically set out to write a neurodivergent character, or or maybe you did, I don't know, but um, I just wonder what that Venn diagram is between um, women with autism and just women who deviate from roles handed down to us. That's a fascinating question. I didn't picture her as neurodivergent, though I can see where Lily is coming from, especially with the you know, planning in advance and rehearsing things to say. I saw her as someone who's anxious um, and also feels very alienated from her family and her hometown and is struggling with 
how to fit into the world when her friend isn't, you know, there to hide behind anymore. Did you see her as neurodivergent, Michelle? I wonder, I guess, on like how many people are undiagnosed in, in, in that regard, right? Because as far as I know, I'm not autistic, but I completely relate to so many um, of those those kinds of characteristics that you're talking about and, mm-hmm. and feeling, you know, um, feeling that it's being difficult to try to connect with people on a, on a like, on these little small, small talk kind of ways and, and figuring out it just, and just, you know, I think you mentioned something, Lilia, about like, when the woman, you know, is talking about the tree being attacked, you know, and, and, and Catherine kind of the weird awkwardness in their, in their interaction and like not quite understanding and, and I'm like, well, I feel that way all the time. <laughs> like that's constantly my experience communicating with people. It's like, feel like we're seeing things in this different way. And I don't know who's normal, you know, but <laughs> I feel like I'm not the one who's normal, but. <laughs> uh, well, just Lily was describing um, seeing language as a friend, which you seem to be describing as an autistic experience also feels like a writer experience. Mm-hmm. I mean, again, maybe I'm just undiagnosed too. Oh, we're all autistic. <laughs> maybe all writers are, but it does seem like Catherine sort of shuttles between on the one hand, really leaning on language as something that um, she loves and likes to think about. And on the other hand, having these um, you know, Michelle is talking about the tree, you know, is the tree poisoned or axed? Um, mm-hmm. What do you mean by murdered the tree? This kind of uh, dissociative relationship to language. Like, I don't understand what you're trying to do. Well, that was the section that really, that made it clear in my interpretation. I think what matters is that an autistic woman read that story and saw that experience reflected. Mm-hmm. That was such a moment of beauty for me that maybe it's less about setting out to um, make sure that, you know, I don't know, like labeling a character, but a person of that experience saw that experience in the literature. And that's just what it's all about for me. So and that brings me to my one of my questions too, which is clearly I interpreted something that maybe you all didn't. Do you ever, as writing partners, do you ever write a story together where one of you thinks it's about one thing that the other doesn't? I don't know. I mean, unless in a situ- unless we're in a situation like this where we're, you know, being asked questions about a story, I'm not sure we talk a lot about. I know we analyze our own stories, which is funny, Lilia, because I'm an English professor. I mean, that's my day job, so I feel like I analyze other people's stories all the time, just not my own. And I think it's completely plausible that Catherine is neurodivergent, even if we never, you know, imagined writing her that way. I think what brings me into writing is I love characters. I mean, I was saying before, I I don't really like plot too much, and that is true, which made writing a novel challenging. I don't love plot. But I, the stories I think work best for me are when the characters feel like real people. And Catherine did feel like a real person to me, a complicated person. 
I just mm-hmm. listened to uh, Ocean Vuong, uh, and he just said, when you take away plot, you have people. I mean, I agree with that. I think that's that's the greatest pleasure in reading for me, really, ultimately, is just reading about people and, and living and, you know, I mean, I, I enjoy a good plot, but... Um, but it's not the most important thing. It's, it's the characters. And, um, but, you know, you had asked about like, whether we interpret things differently. And yeah, I have no idea, but I do know that, um, you know, so much of writing is this sort of unconscious thing that like, very often after I finished a story, um, whether it be a story I wrote myself or that we wrote together, it's like, I'll start having thoughts about, oh, this goes with that. And oh, this that totally makes sense. These different elements come together in this interesting way that I had never thought about while I was actually writing it. Um, so yeah, I mean, <laughs> I think um, there's just all kinds of things happening mysteriously and you know, in the writing that is not in the writer's conscious mind but it's still there, you know? For example, here's something that Michelle and I have never talked about with this story. So do you think Catherine is in love with Edie? Me? Do I think that? Or are they just best friends? I, you know, I don't know. I, I, I guess I think of them as just being best friends, but I also, I think it's a story that kind of, it does sort of question like the difference between those things on some level, right? I mean, like, um, you know, is a female friendship that is platonic somehow less meaningful? I mean, every time I hear people talk about how romantic relationships are somehow more important than friendships, I just think BS, like that's just crazy to me. I I totally agree on both those counts. And Michelle and I actually have another story we wrote called, um, what's it called, Spores, which is about this exactly. I mean, it's about a woman whose best friend has died and she's mourning the best friend. And at one point in the story, she's in a grief counseling group, which she quits because she feels like she isn't given enough um, cred for, you know, like she needs to be mourning someone like a, a spouse or a child. It's not serious enough to have a, this loss of a best friend. And she's thinking like, but I'd trade my husband <laughs> to have my best friend back. So I agree with that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, and that's that's a subject that really interests me. I feel like I feel like I've heard it a million times that friendships are less important than family, romantic partnerships, and I just don't buy it. I don't. It doesn't make any sense. I also think too that historically, at least in Russian literature too, male camaraderie is very um, explored and idealized. And maybe it's because women are supposed to belong to men. Maybe that has something to do with. Like if a woman belongs to another woman, even platonically, that somehow disrupts something. I don't know. I think so. Yeah, it's interesting. Maybe lately, though, like the Elena Ferrante books, um, you know, maybe there's more of a narrative interest than there used to be in female friendships, too. 
But yeah, it, I mean, it goes back to a question you were raising earlier, Lilia, that in a patriarchal culture, it's hard to imagine women as being on each other's side. You know, they're sort of pitted against each other often and, and forced into these adversarial relationships, which come to think of it as another thing Michelle and I tend to write about. Thank you, podcast listeners. That was this month's episode. Next month, associate editor Nicole Piasecki talks with Sarah Curtis about her essay, The Ghosts of Lubbock, from Colorado Review's 2021 summer issue.